Hello, podcast listeners. This is Alan Barr, and you're listening to The Alan Barr Show. You can find me at alanmbarr.com. This is a podcast on technology, business, self-improvement, and other topics. Today's topic is systems thinking. The reason I'm bringing this topic to you today about systems thinking is is not some type of panacea. It's not a silver bullet that's going to fix all the problems that you have. It is simply a different way to look at the world that you may or may not be doing already. It's not something that's going to magically change all the things in your life. And the practitioners of systems thinking say that finding the leverage points, finding what needs to change in a system is incredibly difficult and not easy. The best that they can do is teach you and equip you with the tools to identify when you're in a system, in a situation you need to change. Before we get into today's topic, I want you to reflect on the fact that you are part of a system. I am part of a system our relationships with other people, are parts of what makes systems systems, how we act and how we react is important. And it's really great for us to reflect on our actions and not react instinctively. It's very difficult, very hard to do, but it's very worthwhile. If you are someone that others depend on, you're perceived as a leader, the best thing that you can do is model the behavior that you want to see others adopt. Not asking them to change, just simply let them see from your success, what is working, and let them figure it out. The challenge most people have is they want to try and change something that they're working through. However, there's so many different options, so many different dials to tweak, that it's very confusing and difficult to know what to tweak, when to tweak. How are we measuring the results of the different things that we're tweaking in our lives, and how do we know that they're truly making an impact? It's really difficult and challenging and often Many of us face the forgetting curve so that the new habits we're introducing, we over time rebel against that new system and we drop it. And that's a big challenge for a lot of us that we need to persist continuously making sure that we're making progress on the goals that we seek. Now, before I get into today's topic in depth, I do want to share with you a common pattern I've seen in a couple different resources. One of those is a article by Danella Meadows called Leverage Points, and I'll include this in the show notes, a link to the website. In the book, The Fifth Discipline by Peter Senge, there is a similar diagram. However, it's a little bit more concrete for us. So I'll tackle the diagram from the point of view of Peter Senge, which is this example of a human being seeking to put water in his cup from a faucet. So imagine that you are at your sink, you're looking to fill your cup with tap water, your cup has some amount of water in it, and as you are taking the cup to the faucet, you are putting your hand on the handle of the faucet to unleash the water, and the system that you are interacting with is one where you see a gap between where the existing water is and where you perceive you want water to go to, Then you are changing the dial of the faucet handle to unleash the water so that you reach that desired state. In between the desire and the desired state being fulfilled, there is a delay. There is a gap in time, in action, in results. That is a system. That is the simplest kind of system that we can see. The human being is viewing it with their eyes. They are feeling, sensing in the moment. We've probably done this a million times. We don't even think about it at this point. That is the simplest kind of system. We know that our actions matter. There are delays in the system and the ways that we interact with that at a certain scale could be hidden or not easily seen. If you are here in 2022, 
Seeing and observing the events that have occurred over the past few years, we know that shipping delays are incredibly backed up. Chipsets are backed up. There are a lot of delays that we're seeing in the world today because we had this very tenuous system of just-in-time delivery. Maybe not everybody was doing the Toyota method where they kept some level of backstock on hand. Most people were not. And even the ones that did have some level of backstock for the pandemic going on for as long as it has, clearly everyone must be wiped out with whatever they had on hand. So at some point, systems will break down. The way that Peter Sange attempts to teach how systems work in classes is this game called the beer game that he designs. In it, there are the different parties that are producing beer. There's the wholesalers, there's the local regional retailer, and then there's the small store. And every party is working with the other peer to get beer as customers are demanding it. Maybe some advertisement went out and all of a sudden people are excited about one particular brand. They start falling behind. If they play only their position, the system gets completely out of whack. They keep ordering beer, hoping that more will arrive to sustain the demand. And then at some point, they're going to have a huge amount of overstock of beer that they don't need. And what the game teaches the participants is that if you just play your position, if you don't attempt to work with others, if you don't look out more broadly, you're doomed to suffer all these different problems. So that is the point of today's topic, is to talk about systems thinking based on the perspective of Peter Senge and his book, The Fifth Discipline. The point of The Fifth Discipline is to share Peter Senge's model of what a learning organization looks like in a company. What I think makes this book different than the general topic of systems thinking, typically systems thinking is too focused in on a particular system and how to change that system. What I like about this book, The Fifth Discipline, is that it's focused more on a community of people and how they learn and adapt to increasingly complex situations. We live in a world today where our works can live outside of us. They're asynchronous. They're working constantly through other people, reading, imbibing them, whatever that is. The things we put out into the world can have these outlasting effects that we can't even see how they're affecting people. And we need to deal with those repercussions and understand how can we change and modify these systems once they're in place. Because once they are in place, they can be difficult to change. They fight back against you. They resist the change because they're meant to be durable, but because of that durability, they can also be problematic and cause new problems. So Peter Senge shares in his book, The Fifth Discipline, this idea that there are five disciplines out there. The benefit of using all five disciplines in tandem is that you can achieve a learning organization. He warns that one discipline in absence of the rest is not likely to lead you to great success. The clearest example is that of vision. You can have this bold, broad, beautiful vision, except if you don't have the execution to match it up. It's incredibly frustrating working with someone that has this big, bold vision of a promised future that they're proclaiming, and then they don't have any particular details on how they're planning to back it up. It's more common than you think, I imagine. So the five disciplines that Peter Senge shares, number one is systems thinking, number two is personal mastery, Number three, mental models. Number four, building a shared vision. And number five, team learning. And I'm going to go into some of the other details that Peter Senge shares in the book before I really hammer in these details. 
But those five disciplines are focused on different areas of understanding, of mindset. I don't think this is any information that's revelatory or going to change the world. It's only if you can apply it in an organization. If you can stick to doing these things, I think it can definitely make a huge difference. Let's talk about the seven organizational learning disabilities that Peter Senge shares in his book. I often learn the best when I'm told exactly what I should avoid doing versus all the different things I need to do to be successful. So those seven learning disabilities. Number one is I am my position. The problem with being only your position is that you're going to be limited in your options and how to fix a problem. In the beer game that Peter Sankey teaches students is that if you are simply acting like a local store, your only lever is to order more beer when you're facing increasing demand, then you're going to cause this ripple effect of a very large order of beer sent to your location that you can't sell because the demand has leveled off and now you're wasting a lot of inventory. So you wanna avoid being just your position. You are part of a broader ecosystem of people doing different things. We need to step back and remember, I have more control than I might be giving myself credit. We can do and change things. Now, you might not be in an empowered organization and that could be a very common issue as well. However, be aware that you're not just your position. You can change the system. Number two is the enemy is out there. Blaming outside parties, blaming outside events, it's really just a waste of time. We are all part of a system. Our actions influence others and others' actions influence us. There's no point in blaming because we have to just take responsibility for what we're part of. In the book, there's a quote I like, the feedback perspective suggests that everyone shares the responsibility for problems generated by a system. And I think that's true. We all have to take some level of ownership when things are not working and then change them. Number three is the illusion of taking charge. Here, this is an example where you think you're being incredibly proactive. If you're only focused on dealing with the symptoms of what the system is causing, then you're wasting your time. You make yourself feel like you're very proactive when it's really just a hidden type of reactiveness. You wanna be aware of what you're doing to think through how you are part of the problem and then what you can do to change it. It's gonna be really easy for us to get those small snacks in where we think, oh yeah, if I just change this or I keep my head above water, then everything will be great. But in the end, it doesn't serve us well. Number four is the fixation on events. That's just constant reaction. We're constantly reacting to some event that happened. We go off on this march. You probably see this in organizations all the time. Something boils over. Everyone gets this new edict that they need to change something. It works for a couple months and then everyone forgets and moves on to the next thing. Super common. Number five, the parable of the boiled frog. So the idea, if you've heard, it's probably not very scientific, but it's a really easily shareable meme, I guess. Slow down and observe when the ecosystem is changing and when it might benefit you to change how you're doing your work. You don't want to be a dinosaur like Eastman Kodak watching as the world evolves without you. It's something that we can avoid if we're able and willing to empower each other to make these good choices, but it is also more common than we'd prefer. Number six is the delusion of learning from experience. Many of us, if we're working on a big enough thing with a lot of other people, we will never see the consequences or decisions. We'll move on, we'll get another job, we'll go to some other place. The actions that we are doing are often unseen for months, maybe even years. And lastly, number seven is the myth of the management team. That is this hope and goal that the people, the senior leaders in an organization, 
that they have some magical plan in mind, that they know better, that they have better context. It's usually not the case. It's typically the people that are the closest to decisions know more about what's going on in the business than people that are higher up the chain. There's no real benefit to wait and hope for someone to push from the top down a new vision or a new idea or a new change of plans. We're all participating in the system together. It's more likely it's going to be a combination of our great decision making and then also being close to news and information about what's changing. The point that Peter Senge is making in this book is that the first thing you need to be aware of is that you are in a system that you can change and modify. The way that you need to work with the system is by finding a leverage point. And that leverage point is not going to be easy or simple to see or understand. He describes this idea of system archetypes. He gives a couple examples, but leaves it up to us to understand and see others that we might be observing in our environment. One is a system that continues to grow. Be aware that there is a limit to growth, that you will need to find the bottlenecks in a system. It's typically the case that growing systems slow down unless you find those bottlenecks. The second system archetype is shifting the burden. That's where we put outside effort on fixing the symptoms of a broken system. It's often better to look for the source of where the problem is coming. If we're not able to do this, it can create a very broken, challenging system where we're not really sure why things are broken and why we are allowing it to continue to happen. Another great part of the book is the laws of the fifth discipline. What it suggests is that systems thinking is not going to fix everything for us. The ways that we solve problems can also create new problems. So there's these 11 laws of the fifth discipline. I think they're interesting to share. Number one is the solutions of the past are today's problems. The reason why we're having new problems is because things that worked for us in the past often create new problems for us to fix. I've seen this in multiple instances. It's not a terrible thing. It's just part of how the world works. Two, the system will respond with the same level of force. Imagine a system is built for inertia, whether that's in growth or in stabilization and balancing. We need to understand that it's not going to be easy to, to change the systems. Usually the change, the leverage point is counterintuitive. It's the thing that we're not doing. When we're all going one direction, it's often the other direction or different tactic. But there's no easy answer for this. If it were, it'd probably be selling more books. Number three is improvements may mask a future decline. We might see that because of incentives, because of various reasons where we think we're successful, we're actually starting to lose touch. We're starting to lose ground. Number four, easy solutions rarely solve the problem. The reason that easy solutions don't work is that we would have tried them already. And if they did work, we wouldn't remember it. We'd move on and we'd have a new problem. So typically the easy solution is not gonna work. Number five, a fix might worsen the situation in the sense that when you fix a thing, it could make that worse. And the reason it's worse is maybe it needs to be worse. Maybe you don't wanna be selling an old version of your product. So the fix is to sell the new version. The old version sales start dropping precipitously, but that's really what you want. So you might see unintended effects of changing things. Number six is rushing will only make the situation last longer. You can think of this as fast is slow, slow is smooth. It is very rarely the case that trying to speed up be impatient, rush things is going to result in a higher quality product. It's more likely we need to take our time to be very methodical and understand what is it exactly that we want to improve and how can we do it. If we try to rush through it, it's not going to do us any justice. 
Number seven, there can be large gaps between the change and the consequences of that change. Like we said before, many of these changes that we're making in micro moments every single day, they lead up to these very big outsized outcomes, ideally if you're doing new good things. If you're not, then you're not gonna see those results. Number eight, small changes can yield leverage, but we're not sure what those changes are. We know that systems can change, it's just really not clear what is going to make them change. Often the changes are really simple tweaks that we can make. However, we might be resistant to the idea of making those changes, so that will definitely be a challenge for us. Number nine, you can achieve seemingly at odds goals, but not at the same time. The way you can think of this is that we want to produce a higher quality product cheaper. It seems like a really big ask, of course. It's totally possible. We cannot achieve both of these goals at the same time. We need to focus at one thing at a time and over a duration, we will achieve both goals. We need to focus, solve the one problem, in time, we can have both, but we need to be patient and focus on one goal, not two. Number 10, dividing a problem may not make it simpler to solve. In the book, Peter Senge gives the example of dividing an elephant in two doesn't make two elephants. The idea being we can't deconstruct a system into tiny parts that we can all solve together. The system is a whole. We're not gonna make it smaller. We would love to be able to disassemble a problem into constituent pieces so that we could hand it off to multiple people and teams to solve. Unfortunately, that is not the case of many systems. They're too big. There's too many different pieces in them that cause different reactions that we're not gonna be able to isolate those problems distinctly. Number 11, blame is a waste of time because you are part of the system that you are inhabiting. We all play a role in the systems that we are part of. If we are not taking a proactive stance to fix and change the system, then we are complicit in the aims of the system. All right, now let's go ahead and define the five disciplines that Peter Senge shares in his book, The Fifth Discipline. The first discipline is systems thinking, and this is a mindset very similar to a mindset of abundance that will shift how you think about understanding problems. It's not a panacea, it's not gonna fix everything. It's simply a way for you to step back and think, what is causing this to happen? What can we change to see if it will make a difference in the system? The second discipline is personal mastery. This is individuals in your organization that are seeking to become the best at what they want to be the best at. It is defined as the discipline of personal growth and learning. People that seek personal mastery demonstrate a drive to expand their knowledge and skills to create new opportunities they live a life from a creative viewpoint, not a reactive viewpoint. People with personal mastery have a big vision or goal that they would like to complete in their life. What that creates is a creative tension between the reality of where they are today and the gap between their destination. This creative tension causes energy and excitement to improve and to grow as a discipline. The best way to encourage people to pursue their own personal mastery is to model it yourself. There is no secret that encourages others to seek their own personal mastery other than seeing others achieve success in their pursuit of this. The third discipline is mental models, and the importance of this is communication and understanding of what reality is. The example Senj gives in his book about companies that are not really succeeding it is often because they have these outdated mental models of what the reality is. 
because of their communication styles, they're not able to comprehend why they're losing market share, why they are not being successful in the market. The value here for you to understand mental models is simply clarifying, understanding what mental models that you have in place and what new mental models are you attempting to advocate for with your peers. Peter Senge gives the example of the left-hand column exercise created by Dr. Chris Argris. In this example, there are three columns on a sheet of paper. One column is what I think they are thinking, the second column is what I was thinking, and the third column is what was said. And the purpose of this is in an interaction to think through what assumptions are you making of the other party so that it is clear whether you are giving them a fair shake. Often much of the conflict that we run into in our daily lives and doing our jobs is simply mismatched mental models. The more that we can make our mental models explicit for the other parties, the less mistaken conflict we'll run into, simply because we have different understandings of our worlds and what we're attempting to seek to change and understand, and it is on us, the communicators, to convey our thoughts and new mental models to our listeners. It is on us to do that. As we navigate mental models, we want to make sure that we're understanding what are the theories people say they believe and what are the theories they are actually doing. Listen for when people jump from a concrete example to jumping to a generalization. It could be possible that they don't completely understand what they're talking about. State what is normally not talked about. State the obvious. Often the obvious is not obvious to everyone. And then find the balance between inquiry and advocacy. You are going to want to advocate your new views and ideas of mental models. Show your homework. Explain how you came to your understanding. Allow others to poke holes in your ideas. Encourage others to offer alternatives and ask questions about the viewpoints of others. You can also inquire about other people's views to try and understand what assumptions you might be making. Really only ask questions if you care about the other person's ideas and the response. If you're in a dialogue with someone, ask them what might change their view. If they say that there is nothing that'll change their mind, then move on. If they are interested in changing their mind on a topic, ask if you can design an experiment together so you can both learn something new about the topic. The fourth discipline is a shared vision. The point of this is that our shared visions need to come from every single individual. This is not a top-down thing. A shared vision is vital for the learning organization because it provides the focus and energy for learning. It enables an organization to take risks, experiment, try new things. The trivial conflicts are going to disappear when you cast a big, inspiring vision that means something to every single individual. There's no tactic to how to build a vision. There is no special sauce. There's no secret. It's a lot of talking, a lot of discussing, putting things into a document, understanding everyone's piece of the pie, incorporating their ideas as much as possible. You'll be the most successful when you can frame the vision in the cultural governing ideas your organization has. Vision, purpose, and core values help explain how you're going to achieve this big vision. The more positive the vision is, the more likely you can create untapped success. Many visions are negative. They're really focused on solving one particular problem, one particular competitor. You don't want that. You want a big vision that inspires and creates all kinds of great value. The last discipline is team learning. And the purpose of team learning is around this idea of dialogue, team dialogue. You want your team of people, all masters in different areas to combine and to experience conflict hearty conflict around all the different topics that they work on 
so that we can expose better solutions and we can create better products. There are three critical dimensions of team learning. That's collaboration with a team on thinking through challenging problems. That's high trust coordinated action. And then there's the learning teams outside of the influence of the main team that are gonna adopt and practice these learning skills more broadly. When teams do not trust each other, when they're defensive, when they're not able to show their craft and tackle hard problems, you're not gonna build great products or anything if your teams of people that are experts in their fields are not willing and able to be vulnerable, to get over defensiveness, to share their great ideas, to challenge each other and attempt to make a better product. That's where great products come from, talented people working together around a shared common goal, a shared vision. Thank you for listening. I hope you found some value in this podcast today. It was about the fifth discipline. It is about systems thinking. It is about learning organizations. The purpose of a learning organization is to be adaptable to a changing world, changing circumstances. We need to rely on each other, our mix of unique values, strengths, weaknesses. They are all part of the mix. The sooner we're able to identify when we're in a system and that we have the power to change it. We encourage each other to develop our own personal mastery at what we're attempting to do. When we can have really high quality, high bandwidth conversations around our shared mental models, update them rapidly and get over any type of conflict because we have a clear understanding of what each other are talking about. When we build a shared vision together about our goal of what we're trying to achieve in this life or in our organization. And then finally, our teams are able to learn. They're able to dialogue with each other. They're able to share information and challenge each other quickly, develop conflict, and then learn and build a new great thing. I think this is all great stuff. If you are interested in systems thinking, check out The Fifth Discipline by Peter Senge. Check out the writings of Danella Meadows. There is a lot of great information out there, and I think it's just one additional valuable thing to consider. I hope you enjoyed listening to the podcast, and uh, have a great day.